0: The value of money comes from what we use money for, so everything that we buy from day-to-day.
1: It breaks down a little bit when you come to things that can't be quantified, like transformation, for example.
2: But I would say that the government sets the value of the money. I would say, I would say love is, is, is a prime
0: motivator behind my actions. Hello, and welcome to Democracy How, the podcast that says, hey, United States is not a democracy. how do we make it one? Uh, I'm your host. My name is Sean Donovan. Today's guest is Robin Upton, host of the Unwelcome Guests podcast. Uh, more on him later. but first, uh, I want to pick up on a point that uh, left off with the last podcast about uh, America being a fascist state. I've been trying and failing to convince uh, people uh, people on the street anybody who will listen to me shouting, uh, that America is indeed a fascist state. And I usually run up into some resistance. Uh, People are like, what are you talking about? No, it's not. Nazi Germany, that was a fascist state. And of course, yeah, Nazi Germany was a fascist state. And it was a brutal fascist state. But the mechanisms of fascism isn't exactly the same, or aren't exactly the same as it was uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago now. It's more sophisticated than that. So America, people seem to see the atrocities that America has committed and is continuing to commit. I think when we all know the war in Iraq is was illegal, founded on a lie. And if you look throughout our history, we have all a ton—take your pick—of atrocity in any sort of decade. There's one you can find it. Uh, if people see these atrocities that the state commits not as Uh, they see them as exceptions to the rule, right? They don't see it as indicative of who we are as a people. Now, I'm saying, no, that's not the case. You can't continually commit atrocities and then take a step back and be like, yeah, well, that's not really who we are. That is who we are. That's who we've been, and we have to stop it. Uh, So, you know, people are like, hey, well, fascism is what Nazi Germany was. It's when uh, Hitler shipped people off to concentration camps. And absolutely, it absolutely was. And you don't see that sort of brutal crackdown inside America. Um, You kind of do a little bit with, uh, you know, I don't think it's hard to see the state repression of uh, the blacks, especially with uh, the Ferguson protests and cracking down on that. And then before Ferguson protests, there was, Obviously, the Occupy movement, and that was met with brutal state uh, opposition. Uh, so you can't entirely write those off either. So now uh, most of America's brutal violence, or when we react violently, it's not necessarily done by America itself. I mean, it is with uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, our drone wars. Those are all awful. But it's mostly done through uh, proxy governments or uh, client states or basically under um uh, the guise of some kind of dictatorship or regime that the uh, CIA secretly funnels money or arms to we overthrow democratically elected governments you can the whole history of the western hemisphere fear uh, latin america i mean almost so uh, all the countries there have been just brutalized by capitalism and by our um Supportive dicta- uh, dictatorships. And we the way capitalism works now is you don't have to physically annex a state for that state to uh, pretty much be under your thumb. I mean, it's kind of a brilliant system. So we can just set up a dictator, uh, have our corporations go down there, uh, steal the resources, and we take the money without actually physically annexing, say, uh, you know, Guatemala. We just th- overthrow their... Uh, President and install the guy that we like. So, if you look at that context, yeah, we do. We we react brutally, we react violently, and we react anti-democratically. All the things, all the characteristics that fascism has. We're just very good at at uh, creating a layer of plausible deniability. So it's like, oh no, we didn't do that. That was just uh, a dictator did that. Nothing to do with us. But really, it did have a lot to do with us. So if you look at it on a global scale, it's really hard to deny that America is, in fact, a fascist state. But nobody will accept that because we do not want to accept it. Nobody wants to think of themselves as being part of a state that is fascist. Uh, But I say it is. I say all the evidence is there. So, I mean, we butt-feed people. The CIA, that came out of the torture report. Like, a government that's not fascist does not non-consensually butt-feed people. It's ridiculous. So, stop denying it. Let's all just accept it. Stop playing the moral relativist game and trying to, I don't know, write off these things as just uh, uh, silly mishaps that we did. They're not silly mishaps. They're awful. And we need to do something drastic to change it. So... Without going into the revolution topic that we went into uh, the last couple episodes, we're going to talk about a similar theme of kind of displacing capitalism, Uh, but this episode we're going to talk about an alternate economy and not necessarily put in place through a violent revolution of its own. We're going to talk about uh, the gift economy. That's what Robin Upton's going to talk about. But before we get into my interview with him, I wanted to hit the streets and just ask people about uh, money. What what do they know about money? Uh, Does money motivate them? Is that the driving factor behind their motivations? And do they even know where money comes from? Where does the value of money come from? Because I really don't know, to be honest. So I wanted to go ask people uh, those questions and see uh, what they thought. So here we go. Okay. uh, Do you find that money is a prime motivator behind your actions? Uh, Yes, I do, actually, yeah. And where do you think the value of money comes from?
2: Uh, well, let's see. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not that good at this subject, but I would say that the government sets the value of the money mm-hmm. that uh, we spend. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, they have uh, capacity to print unlimited amounts. Right. So, you know, that's, that's uh, where it stands right now.
0: Okay, thank you very much. That's
2: it? That's it. I'm not even sure if I answered that right or wrong.
0: Oh, it's yeah. not about right or wrong. It's yeah. Just, I'm just trying to get a test yeah. of everybody, like, yeah. what people think. It's a good question, yeah. yeah. Thank you. All right, have a good no, day. All right. Miss. Uh, Hello.
2: How you doing? Good, how are you? Great, great, great. Uh,
0: do you find that money is, like, the prime motivator behind your actions? Um,
2: I, would say, I would say love is, is, is a prime motivator uh, behind my actions. Uh,
0: cool. And, uh... Where do you think
2: the value of money comes from? Um, it comes from, you know, us being in a situation where we don't have much land and we can't grow our food and kill the you know, get the yeah. you know, kill the animals like we used to to, to or catch fish and, you know, yeah. to provide for your family. So it's that, that whole barter system has become, you know, service for for, for uh, you know, that currency. Yeah. You know, so that's where, that's where I think it boils down to. All
3: right, cool. Thank you very much. Oh,
2: yeah, no
0: problem. Well, that's fine. Hello. Hi. How are you? So good, I can hardly stand it. If I was any
3: better, I'd be twins. How are you?
0: <laughs> I'm doing well. Um, so do you find that money is a prime motivator behind your actions?
3: Absolutely. Okay.
0: And uh, where do you think the value of money comes from? That's a great question. Well, the, the value of money, I mean, how far back do you want me to go? As far as you like, w- want to go.
1: Do you want me to, like, However tell you, you the whole it. story
0: of world history where, like, there was sex and there was brute physical force and then some Napoleon needed to make money to, like, you know, like, we don't need to go back that far. What do you mean? Like, the val- where the value of money comes from? It's kind of, it's very open-ended. Yeah. Well, I think the value think of money
1: it. comes from what we give to it. It comes from the credibility we lend it.
3: Okay.
0: All right. That's all. Thank you very much. Hello. Hi. God. <laughs> Good. going? Uh, Good. So do you find that uh, money is the prime motivator behind your actions? no okay and uh where do you think the value of money comes from (laughs) uh i guess i would say in the freedom that it provides the sort of availability of options okay all right well that's it okay thank you very much all right have a good day yeah you too all right it's recording hello how are you good how are you doing pretty good okay so uh do you find that money is the prime motivator behind your actions uh, I would say one of the primary motivators, yes. Okay. And where do you think the value of money comes from? Value of money comes from what we use money for. So everything that we buy from day to day. So it comes from the actual commodities themselves? Yes. Okay. That's all. Thank you very much. Sure. Yeah. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. All right. So uh, do you believe that money is the like prime motivator behind your actions?
1: Um, well, I wish that I had more of it. <laughs> but I try not to let it be. Okay. Cool. And
0: where do you think uh, the value of money comes from?
1: Um, It's a good question. I don't know. Society in general mm-hmm. can't really do much without it. Yeah. So we're all taught to grow up and make it, and that's the only way to be successful and fulfilled. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Have a good
0: one. Hello. Uh, do you believe money to be the prime motivator behind your actions? Um, yes. Most of the time, yes. Okay. And uh, where do you think the value of money comes from? Um, from people wanting nicer things and wanting to live in nicer places. So, I would say that's what gives money value.
3: Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. I don't, uh,
0: Recording.
1: Hello. Hi.
0: So, um, is, do you believe money to be the prime motivator behind
1: your actions? I do not. If you look at the, um, uh, if you look at, sorry, let me, I'm trying to remember the thing that was um, the, it's not Kohlberg, right? The hierarchy of needs? Yes. Maslow. Maslow, thank you. All right, just ask me again.
0: Okay, Uh, do you believe uh, money to be the primary motivator behind your actions?
1: I do not. If you look at the Maslow hierarchy of needs, at the very base of our hierarchy is providing and for our families, security, food, shelter, having enough money to take care of ourselves. But once you've got that set, the higher needs of contribution and self-realization become a lot more important. So I think that money is a prime motivator. As long as people are struggling and they don't have enough for themselves and their families, then they need to prioritize money. But once you've got enough, you can start to prioritize higher things and making a contribution in the world, making a difference. But not everybody has the luxury to be able to prioritize that because they don't have the basis covered yet all right gotcha
0: and uh, where do you believe the value of money to come from
1: um the value of money is just a construct that we've created as a society to exchange um worth so if you want to exchange you know a chicken for something that then you can then buy something commensurate measure it to the chicken with it it's a, a shortcut to um valuing and providing worth related to kind of objects and commerce. It breaks down a little bit when you come to things that can't be quantified, like transformation, for example.
0: Right. Okay.
1: All right. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. You're welcome.
0: All right. So those were the street interviews. Um, The point of me doing these street interviews isn't so much to get uh, right or wrong answers as, Like that uh, one guy seemed concerned whether or not he was giving a correct answer. It's not really, that's not really about getting correct answer. It's more so just, I want to engage people uh, in questions that maybe they don't get engaged in very often. And I think with money, it's a very important thing to think about. And uh, everybody seemed to have a piece of it, right? Uh, Everybody had an idea of where the value of money is and whether or not it motivates them. I mean, pretty subjective, but I feel like we're not very encouraged to think about what is, what is money? Why does it have value? Uh, those are kind of deep questions that should be required for us to think about, but obviously uh, the existing order wouldn't enjoy if a lot of people questioned why the thing that's ruling their lives is ruling their lives. Like, it's so vast how money just kind of It doesn't, uh, you know, completely dictate all your actions, but it certainly limits your actions, and the amount of things you can do in life is kind of limited by how much money do you have. Your quality of life is directly influenced by how much money you have, unfortunately. And if you start thinking about it too much and asking too many questions, uh, pretty soon you realize that this whole thing is a sham, and the powers that be don't want you thinking like that, because... Then the whole thing kind of collapses, and uh, couldn't have that happen. So <laughs> what do we do when money collapses? Maybe we start the gift economy, and that's what we're going to be talking about today uh, with our guest. So my guest today is Robin Upton. If you don't know who Robin is, as I assume many of you listening probably don't, uh, he runs a wonderful podcast. It's called Unwelcome Guests. Uh, you can listen to it uh, at... Uh, UnwelcomeGuests.net. It's a really long-running podcast. It's been going on since uh, the year 2000. There's a lot of uh, great episodes. If you're looking to get into it, I would uh, start with the one that I started listening to it. A a friend of mine actually referred me to the podcast. Tim McIntyre. He's a uh, comedy friend and mentor, and he turned me on to it a few years ago. McIntyre also has his own podcast, uh, The McIntyre Conspiracy. Check that out uh, when you get a chance. But uh, with Unwelcome Guests, it started with an episode called uh, The Bloodstained Laundry of Capitalism, and it was a discussion with uh, David Graver, who's a leftist anarchist and anthropologist. Uh, he wrote a great book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years, um, and then there was a reading from uh, Howard Zinn's People History, and it was really sort of an enlightening listen Uh, and from there I started listening to pretty much all of them, and I would say that the podcast has been pretty much responsible for radicalizing me, if you you will. I did air quotes over radicalizing. Uh, I don't don't believe my views are very radical. I believe that uh, capitalism itself is probably the most radical force in human history, seeing that it's only existed for about uh, 200 years, and it's kind of modern form and human beings have been around for about 200,000 years and uh, at no point in human history has all of our pretty much basic needs been monetized and controlled by a very few amount of people, basically a few people in government and uh, corporations and corporations kind of run the government by proxy and they really kind of control our food supply (laughs) our uh, water supply, basically our housing. Uh, So, yeah, I'd say capitalism is a radical force. So basically what this podcast does is it kind of dissects a lot of things about our society that uh, you won't hear dissected in sort of mainstream corporate-controlled media circles. So um, the podcast is really good. I would recommend going to the website and checking them all out. Um, and uh, Robin is the host and kind of a curator of it all. He puts together all the um, podcasts, and a lot of them are like, compilations of different lectures from different intellectuals and other figures sort of from the left side of the spectrum who, you know, if you want to define it as left and right, I think Robin probably has some views about that as well. But uh, it's mostly... Um, sort of dissonant information that you're not going to hear. So, Robin, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, who you are, where you come from,
3: that sort of thing? Well, as you can tell from my accent, I dare say I'm an Englishman. I grew up mostly in the UK. Um, I did travel abroad a little bit. Uh, I lived as a teenager in Denmark, and I went to university in Germany. So I wasn't completely English. But to tell a story of how I ended up in Bangladesh, one incident that deserves mention is Bob Geldof's Live Aid. I was shocked as a teenager to see people really suffering with no food to eat. I was shocked by that, and I was shocked that adults around me could see that on the television and then just get on with their lives, busy doing whatever jobs they were doing, which to me didn't seem that relevant when I saw people in such need as a kid I had a big heart and just thought well that surely has got to take a priority so I was shocked even more to see later on more famine okay so people put money in the tin uh, the aid agencies I originally took at face value started to disbelieve their claims well if you give us some money we'll sort it out and similarly the governments of the world busy doing other things and preventing people from being in such dire need didn't seem to be high on their list of things to do so I mean I didn't resolve I'm going to go out and try and tackle famine in Africa Um, I didn't know what I was going to do but that impacted me a lot as far as the awareness that living in northern Europe I was in a kind of a bubble So when I went to an international school age 16 and met people who'd lived in many many parts of the world I was slightly prepared for that and I did a lot of years at university. I eventually got a PhD. Uh, Back in those days I didn't need to get into debt in order to get that qualification so I did and then slightly to the disappointment of my parents rather than live in Europe, carry on, get a high-paid job, I decided, no, I'm not going to help the third world, the poor people of the world, as I then referred to them, by sending money, because who knows what happens when money gets sent abroad. I'm going to actually go there and help in the real world. That's something that isn't going to get siphoned off into somebody's Swiss bank account if I'm there with the people physically helping them. So that was certainly a part of why I decided to go for Bangladesh. Uh, I knew that Bangladesh was a poor country. Um, the infamous quote of Kissinger as a basket case is still not forgotten by the Bangladeshis. Originally I did find it a bit tough here. The, it's very hot and I didn't speak the language to begin with. I still find it rather hot but I have got used to the language and a lot of the culture. I did travel back and forth from bangladesh to europe for several years and i sort of struggle to explain the appeal of the place to my european friends but the people here have a real aliveness an alertness a connection to the land which is just not there in europe most of them grow their own food for example which is a good starting point for a real democracy i mean yes bangladesh is known to be a corrupt country but people know it's corrupt i think this is one of the differences between say western europe people will say no our government is not corrupt they wouldn't do things like that when they don't really have much of an impression their impression has been sort of stage managed if you like by the commercially controlled media so over the years living in europe living in bangladesh it just became clear to me that i was happier and healthier when i was living in bangladesh
0: so being located in bangladesh do you notice or feel a sort of western imperialist presence
3: well an imperialist presence um i suppose yes i mean in my field english teaching there's these dreadful things called essay books where kids are expected to memorise essays off by heart. Now, they're a real mixed bag, but just occasionally I find essays which appear to have been untouched for a century or so, and very, very old English, a very, very old sort of Victorian-style thinking about how the world works, and this is still being memorised by kids in Bangladesh. And kids here also still learn this sort of cursive script, to me very old-fashioned looking, um, sometimes even barely readable in the textbooks, um, which I think stems from the imperialist project before the days of photocopiers, when instructions would be sent out to the four corners of the empire and then needed to be displayed and dispersed. So, as a language teacher... I've also noticed not only sort of careful copying of instructions, but vocabulary is the main element in the teaching syllabus because it was important to have subjects who understood what they were being told to do. Similarly to a lot of language tuition around the world, there isn't much emphasis on the spoken word. So it's mostly book-based and it seemed to be much more important for the imperialists to have subjects who would understand written instructions rather than those who were capable of, say, answering back or of expressing their own ideas. So that's sort of common to schools generally, but just occasionally it really jumps out at me here. People are very deferential to me. As a white face here, I pop out immediately as a foreigner, and, you know, it's hard not to sort of abuse this this reverse racism, um, when I sit and reflect that this is possibly some kind of innate response to centuries of oppression and the white man being the important person to keep happy in a situation if he potentially controls an empire's army, um, Bengalis by culture are very hospitable to guests and it's, it's sometimes a slightly uneasy mix of the two that I can sense. Um, In terms of sort of modern imperialism, when I first came out here in 1998, they didn't have supermarkets, never mind sort of global brands, they didn't have mobile phones, and so the Western imperialist presence has been sort of manifested through technology, because these days everybody's got smartphones and there are sort of units from multinationals that have gone global. Bangladesh is 150 million people so it's a massive market potentially. Um, It's still a bit of a backwater um, because of various reasons. It's not an easy country in which to do business. So I'm not sure about an imperialist presence but a commercial presence is certainly starting to make itself felt um, in quite a lot of the country then technology is available, cell phones being the most prominent example. But life is still, I think, much healthier, has more of a continuity. Um, The core values, if I can put it like that, are not particularly influenced by capitalism, this sort of philosophy of uh, self-advancement, whatever the costs. Do you see
0: capitalism as an impediment to democracy? And uh, in what ways?
3: Well, yes, I do see capitalism as an impediment to democracy in a lot of ways. I can't take the Western form of democracy seriously. I mean, you take a mark in a box every few years and that is the limit of your democratic voice with no sort of comeback so that Obama, for example, can say, "Yeah, I'm going to close down Guantanamo and decides not to and decides to expand it. If you bought something in a shop and they said, well, this is going to do X and you plugged it in and it did Y, then you would be entitled to some kind of redress. Yeah, how does capitalism relate to democracy? Well, capitalism says whatever you want, if you've got the money for it, there you go. If you don't, well, then you can't have it. So that is focusing the decision making on those who have money and To get straight to the heart of it, who are those who have money? Well, those who control the system that decides who has money. So banks, for example, have a license to create money out of nothing, and then lend it out to people at interest, not on any particular claim of virtue, but just because they are banks. So as a result, they're not short of money, nor are the people who can invest in them, and so on. So capitalism. If effectively, is some kind of a dictatorship. It's not a clear rule by decree. There is an obfuscation factor. But in the workplace, and this is less true in a country like Bangladesh, where people don't necessarily feel obliged to follow these systems, where a lot of people are working for friends and family anyway, so there are softer forms, but sort of neoconservative or neoliberal idea of the market being the deciding factor for everything and economic decisions replacing all other criteria for how society should be structured, is that money will make the decisions and if you want to do something at work and the boss says no, this is how it's going to be, there's no democracy there, as Richard Wolfe points out, it's overtly, explicitly totalitarian in nature. And if you say, well, I don't like that system, I would rather not take a part in it, well, then, where do you get your money with which you provide for yourself? People didn't need to use money. There used to be a common awareness that things like water, access to the land, should be available for free. None of these capitalists have launched on a process of... Creating land, the way that oil companies don't create oil, they're extracting it and burning it. It's a one time gift from nature, and a lot of societies and cultures and value systems are quite clear on that. What we have, what we live with, is gifts. Without these gifts from God or from nature, without these provisions, then we wouldn't be alive. And it's notable that when the natural world is looked upon as resources, to be maximised in financial terms, the result is usually disastrous. The rainforests get cut down, the water gets extracted and exploited and polluted, because under the system of economics, you'd be irrational to do anything else. When it's looked upon as a gift, often a sacred gift, on which all life depends, this awareness is very much at the fore and it's looked after, it's nurtured. So I see capitalism as an impediment not only to democracy but to the human long-term survival on this planet and the survival of a whole bunch of other animal and plant species as well. As Derek Jensen points out, there's been a terrible sort of transformation in pro-environmental NGOs, as they're called. I find that, that sort of any of these large organisations, when they use money they tend to get subverted. So instead of valuing nature, looking after the world because it deserves to be looked after, instead of having a respectful, humble approach, valuing the rest of life on earth because it deserves it, it's now about sustaining this way of living, sustaining this worldview, objectifying the world, reducing things to money values. It's become trying to follow a sort of impossible task no we can't save the planet by switching our filament light bulbs to fluorescent tubes or even leds it's about keeping capitalism going and i agree with him that this is sort of fundamentally flawed we need a real rethink i don't think we need to sort of revert necessarily in terms of technology i don't think we can sort of turn the clock back But we certainly need to step back from the brink of sort of modernity, this reductionist, nihilistic uh, objectification of the world to sort of re-sacralise it, to to reconceive ourselves not as self-maximising sociopaths basically but to see that we're part of the matrix of life that we have a lot to give to the world. We are in a difficult spot in terms of environment, pollution, climate change. A lot of the natural world, as a result of earlier excesses, is not what it could be or should be. And that is something that is going to have to be amended. But um seems to me more important than, than any of these material circumstances is where we're at spiritually our sort of mental map of the world. Is humanity just a parasite? And Chomsky talks about, well, intelligence is our our evil mutation, which is going to do for us. Well, it's certainly not how I feel about my intelligence. I think a lot of the disturbances that we're seeing around the world more and more um, in this century is a grassroots dissatisfaction with the world view that the powers that be continue to try and ram down our throat humans as predatory creatures humans in competition with each other and with the natural world that's certainly not how i would like to see myself and i reject a system that says well this is how you have to act and as controversial as it may be i see that if i'm using money then I am in competition. Money has no inherent value, even if you make it out of gold. I'm not going to physically use that object, so why should I prescribe value to it? It's only worth something to me because it's worth something to you, and if it was in abundance, it wouldn't be worth anything to either of us. So, to quote John Ruskin, a 19th century social critic, The force of the guinea you have in your pocket depends wholly on the default of a guinea in your neighbour's pocket. If he didn't want it, it would be of no use to you. So this accounting system we've got using money is one that makes it quite impossible for everybody to be rich. That's something I discovered in about 2003 and seemed to fit with my calling, my inherent distrust of money and commercial motives although it's it's what we know this is the world in which you and i grew up this is not the world which i would like to leave to the next generation so since about 2003 i've concluded that the gift economy is actually the only system which really offers us hope for sustainability in the long term
0: one of the things i enjoy about uh, unwelcome guests uh, is that you and the speakers that you get on there um, offer their opinions on an alternative economy, and you share a lot of ideas um, about this idea of the gift economy. Uh, Can you explain what the gift economy
3: is? A gift economy is basically a system of giving. So if you think about how a family works, at least an ideal sort of healthy, happy family, they don't need to write out contracts Uh, There's no idea about sort of forceful interventions. There may be an expectation that what goes around comes around. I mean, that that seems to be fairly much uh, human nature. You like giving things to people who've been giving things to you. We like that idea of reciprocity. So rather than trying to legislate that, um, talk about interests and, and debt and so on, we leave that up to the human element with the assumption that most people like things to be fair if people consistently behave selfishly to other people they may be sort of de facto excluding themselves from a gift economy but by and large some people of course have different abilities than others Um, but more or less everybody likes the idea of giving things and giving back things to people who've helped them out
0: so if we're to somehow transition into the, this gift economy um you know would it be sort of state managed um and how would it how would it different what uh differentiate from other forms of like economic organization like uh capitalism or communism
3: well quite fundamentally. Capitalism and communism are not the polar opposites that they're often portrayed to be. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I dislike this idea about sort of left and right politics. It has a very polarizing and limiting effect. Neither of them seem to question the assumption that a small number of people should be in charge of a large number of people. Now, I've already mentioned a few uh, Of my concerns as far as the western democratic model. A lot of the communist ideas about sort of joint ownership, I I approve of the ideas, but how they were put into practice is where I would question um, their validity. On a simple level, I mean, capitalism and communism both had this thing called money, which abstracts value away, which as we have seen, people have started to understand since 2008 in particular, is actually very dangerous if it becomes more important than the real world. If people start to make decisions based on money, and ignoring the consequences in the real world, well, this is a fiction. This is in our minds. Now, that's a criticism often levelled against capitalism, and, you know, in the communist system, at least some of the systems, people were provided with a place to live, with uh, activity and with food. Still, there was a sense that they were provided for, not as a gift, but as an entitlement, as a right. It brings them into a larger system. And Ivan Ilyich brought this to my attention, the sort of powerlessness of people in large systems leads to, for example a feeling that the system does not care about us as individuals. I mean, I would question the sanity of anybody who really felt personally cared for by the unemployment benefit system. I mean, nice to have in a world which denies you access to resources unless you have this money, but does anybody really think the system personally cares for them? This is a very important thing for us as human beings, to be cared for as individuals and to care for others as individuals. A lot of people seem to spend a lot of their time caring about abstractions like money um, or even like laws if you want to go down that road which I won't at the moment because you asked me about communism and capitalism and the economic model to its credit I suppose is quite explicit ...about its debasing assumptions of humanity, homo economicus, sort of assuming that nobody has anybody they care about, that everybody is selfish maximizers. I mean, very unflattering and fallacious assumptions, but at least it's explicit about them. Now, the communist system, I don't think it was so explicit about its expectations of human nature, but the assumption if we think we need a system with people in charge is that without that bad things will happen. Now why would they happen? Implicitly at least because of human nature. That's the way of the world. The gift economy doesn't take such a pessimistic assumption. So perhaps this is my interpretation of the gift economy but I see it as sort of more inherently anarchic because if you have to give a gift, if you're compelled to give, then it's not a gift a gift in the true sense comes from the heart and to contemplate running a society with a gift economy is to consider that that motivation alone, the desire to give to people around one, to express one's talents, one's gifts, that that could be a basis for provision and that to deny it is to deny something essential about human nature.
0: up uh, next week's episode, we'll uh, continue our conversation with Robin Upton, and uh, we'll get more into the gift economy, and uh, sort of how to bring it about, I hope you enjoyed that, I hope it was enlightening, he's got a lot of interesting ideas, and I think we pretty much just take for granted um, this idea of money, and the fact that money will be perpetual, that we can't imagine uh, a world without it. Uh, and I think it's good that somebody puts forth an idea like the gift economy, which is sort of just uh, changing all of our uh, preconceptions, like, why do we need money? Why is it just accepted that it it needs to be in existence? And I think it's good that, uh, you know, we start thinking about alternatives and different ways of uh, understanding how to sort of exchange goods and services. Uh, and with the capitalist model uh, to me it just doesn't make any sense that you have to capitalism depends on perpetual profits to, to into affinity uh, but money is really just a stand-in it's an in-between that is a, a you know a mode of exchange that will represent a commodity and the labor uh that was uh used or um expanded or uh not expanded, the, the labor that was uh, put into creating this uh, uh, commodity. So in that sense, like when you exchange commodities in money, like how is a profit ever made? Um, I, I mean, the system will just short-circuit, as it always does, and it causes a, a crash. You can't continually reap profit unless somebody is getting uh, basically screwed on one end of the equation, whether it's the workers, which it mostly is. Um, or the consumers. Uh, I mean, you can't just keep creating value and creating money when um, you know if you exche- if I exchange to you uh, if we traded a chair and a table um, or however that works out, two chairs for one table. Uh, we're agreeing that that in that exchange that there is a that those things are equal to each other. So if you really think about any kind of trade as being a trade of equals, like how does that generate profit? And it can only generate profit if somebody is getting screwed. Like you you know, you trade uh, one chair for one table. Well, what happened to the other chair? You know. So when you start to look at exchanges, really the only way an exchange can take place is if it's taking place between uh, goods or services of equal value, then there really is no way that profit exists. So, in a, in a sense, the gift economy actually, uh, to me, makes more sense than the state of uh, capitalism reaping perpetual profits. It's actually more natural to be giving a gift or just to do an exchange because you're assuming that if something's coming back to you, then you're going to get something back in an equal value. Um, so things to think about, uh, for <laughs> next week's episode, we'll actually go back into, um, you know, actually sort of implementing the gift economy. Uh, I'll talk to some more people about, uh, on the streets, get uh, other people's ideas of alternative forms of economies. Um, see if anyone can really, I mean, cause really if we were a, demo- a democracy, uh, we wouldn't just be sold on one economic policy forever, in a real democracy the people would have say over what their economic system is and that economic system would change uh based on the wants and desires of the people uh based on new technology new ideas that come into circulation and this would be changing all the time uh but of course we don't live in an actual democracy and we are stuck with capitalism until something radical happens to stop it um so uh, <laughs> unlike uh, the last couple episodes, we're not going to talk about uh, violent revolution. We're going to talk about replacing it in a peaceful way. Uh, so we're going to end today's episode uh, with a uh, band. Uh, it's probably not for everybody. Uh, the band is called uh, Gut Full of Poo, and uh, they are the world's preeminent premier avant-garde uh doo-doo-wop fecal folk coprophiliac funk explosion band and uh, they were best known for trolling the Los Angeles open mic scene in 2014 with uh, farcical songs about poop so here we go, Uh, thanks to the Crab Diving Network for hosting this ridiculous podcast Uh, tune in, uh, it's going to be on Sundays now we're releasing it um but that's pretty much it. Follow us at democracy uh, how on Twitter. Uh, if you have any comments, suggestions, I'm always open to them. Uh, email me at podcast at gmail.com. Let's kick it over to Gut Full of Poo for a uh, two-song selection here. We get uh, Blowing Kisses with My Anus, Alpha Rock, and uh, Stand Up, and Shit Like a Man. All right. Peace.
4: Thank you. I my (laughs) chord. Just to
2: make it out without you. I I am Lupoo. The guy who forgot the cord is Lu 2 And we, provably, make up the greatest musical experience, not knowledgeably, in the world. Guffle of Poop. Or (laughs) G-Fop. If you're down with the poop. Let them know you're down with the poo. They say Z-pop. They're like, oh, I got full of poo. Did you see them at Wembley? You're like, yeah, it was great. Of course. They're awesome. going to do a bad show. Our first tune. Oh. Coming in hot. <laughs> our first tune is a, uh, tune. our
0: first tune. Distortion or no distortion? Whatever. This is a really
2: called Blowing Kisses with My Anus and in parentheses, Alpha Rock.
4: This
2: is based on a 70s Italian art film that I saw a couple weeks ago. In two statements and it's
4: Like I like saw them cleaning up and I didn't process it. Wow.
2: No, no, let's do a, uh, uh, oh wait, yeah, that's what we want to do. We're our next song, <laughs> so I'm glad you enjoyed the first one. If you enjoyed that first one, you're in luck. We've got another stupid song about who. This one's called, You well, notice that upon multiple listings, which you will end up doing, you notice the layers, like stratified layers of the Like when you eat several very different meals, but it all comes out at once. You know what I mean. Even if you did vocal. shit on my heart, You domesticate your lovers with poop. shooting out your flabby core. You're brown like a cinnamon girl, you funky dyke. But I'm like, more like shit on men, girl, am I right? I'm getting up, slut my wife and my butt. So here's my advice. You get yogic out of that vegetable advice.
4: Stand
2: up and shit like a